John Golia. I'm Greg Fife. And I'm Todd Curtis. And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. Between us, we have over a century of aviation accident investigation and safety experience to draw on as we discuss issues that affect all of us. So we are qualified to share our perspectives on accidents and incidents and what can be learned from them for the future. We're proud to say that we have two sponsors that really relate to the topic of aviation safety. The Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, or PAMA, and Avemco Insurance. Later on in the show, we'll tell you how you can get a 5% discount on your returns just for listening to the show. We don't just dissect the official reports. In every episode, we identify safety issues and take the mystery out of accident investigations. So maybe pilots in their planes can have safer flights ahead. Well, hello, gentlemen. It is another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. It feels like forever since I've uh, been with my two other flight safety detectives. Um, Of course, it has been a a very busy first part of the year, and unfortunately, it's going to get worse before it gets better. But I'm always happy to see you guys uh, I miss hanging out with the flight safety detectives, but it's obvious you've been able to carry on without me. And I'm sure the audience is loving just you two guys chatting back and forth without me beating up on both of you. So it's good to see you guys. Good to see you as well. Well, good Mr. to be seen. Yeah, well, that that's very true, too. So uh, I'm I'm very happy for that. But we got uh, a lot of things to talk about. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of time to talk about them. So let's uh, let's get right into it. Over the last uh, month or so, we've had two, and actually it's been more, but we'll look at just two of the uh, the air carrier events that have made news prominently. First one was at JFK involving a, an American 777 versus a Delta Airline 737. And then the other event that happened down in Austin, Texas, was a FedEx airplane versus a Southwest 737. So uh, let's get, let's get right into it, Todd. And I know that you know you started researching some of this stuff for the show, and of course, John, I always know you're going to chime in. But uh, I've been looking at these events as well because in teaching an accident investigation course recently, I was using at least the uh, the JFK event as a discussion item as to what the NTSB and the FAA should be looking at during the course of this investigation. So what did you find in a nutshell with uh, with both of these, Todd? Well, uh, especially with uh, Austin, which, uh, you know, I have a personal connection there. I actually flew out of there when I was in the Air Force, when it's still an Air Force base, so I'm vaguely familiar with it. Um, what struck me is that, why did these planes get so close? And I thought, well, let's look at the data. Fortunately, places like Flight Radar 24 has actually uh, uh, taken that data and given some analysis. And it was a very low visibility situation. It was about 6.40 in the morning, local time. And vertical visibility was only about 200 feet. We're talking like less than a half statute mile of horizontal visibility. So uh, it's likely, in my opinion, 
that the folks in the control tower couldn't see anything on the runway. And for whatever reason, the uh, aircraft were such where when the Southwest aircraft, which was taking off, finally started its takeoff roll, the FedEx 767, which was barreling in for a landing, was uh, about 0.7 miles away, which is uh, well inside the uh, separation that should be happening at that point. So fortunately, action was taken that where they didn't hit each other, but it begs the question, why did they get in that situation in the first place? And John, I know that, uh, you know, you've been looking at this as well, and uh, you're always in tune with the FAA and the board. Um, you know, what's going on? Well, when the FAA, this this uh, this might be a career ender for the controller in, in question, but there's also uh, some issues here that nobody's talked about yet. You know, that when you have an airplane on a Cat 3 approach, you're supposed to protect the end of the runway. This big piece of aluminum sitting down there impacts upon those precision radio signals uh, going to the cockpit. So how did this airplane, even if he was stopped off to the side, how did he get in that box? You know, you, you look at it oftentimes on, when you're looking at the instrument approach, and there's a box at the end of the runway that they, they, uh, they being the uh, FAA, the air traffic controllers, are required to keep clear airplanes because of that reason. We know that those big pieces of metal deflect and, and somehow deform uh, the radio signals that are so critical to the airplane coming in. So uh, how did they let this airplane get into that zone, so to speak? It's, and you're and referencing, only, and you're referencing right. the uh, the Austin event. Yes. So on either side of the, of the runway, it's supposed to be protected from large pieces of metal just because we know the effect it has on the signals for a CAT-3 approach. Now, it was visibility was limited on, the, on this flight. And I was looking at the, the uh, visibility charts, and it was up and down for like the previous 20 or 30 minutes. Uh, they were right on minimums. They dipped below it a little bit, but they didn't have any activity. And then it, uh, it would come up to, to uh, 1,600 feet, 2,000 feet. So they were having some visibility issues on top of it. And once you get so close to the airport uh, from the, the runway's end, uh, visibility from the, from the cockpit of a 767 that's beginning to flare uh, can be a challenge as well. So well, you, you've got a whole combination of, of uh, technical issues and people issues coming together. And thank God, thank God that one of those pilots saw the... the uh, Southwest on the runway. Well, let's stick with that one for a second. Um, when you look at um, dissecting it from an accident investigation perspective, while there are the obvious things, and and that of course is why did they get so close? Who called yeah. to go around? The fact that the the FedEx folks, um, you know, acted as they should, and that was to abort the landing, and they uh, they then bailed off and uh, prevented a collision. But let's let's back up a little bit. <laughs> you got to look at what the crew briefing was in both airplanes. Let's start with the FedEx. When you look at the FedEx, how were they briefed? What were they doing? Were they prepared uh, properly to conduct that approach? And were they monitoring, uh, of course, the frequency, not just monitoring, but actually plugged in and listening to what was going on to understand that there was another uh, another airplane, i.e. the South, Southwest airplane, 
in position, getting ready to uh, to take off. So communication is going to be a big issue. Um, was the uh, FedEx airplane on the tower frequency? Were the uh, Southwest guys still on the ground frequency? And again, we know that if you have independent controllers, one is not monitoring the other. And so was there a frequency issue as far as not being able to monitor on the same frequency what was going on? So that's going to be one issue. Two, Todd, you brought this up uh, off the air, and that was we got to look at the timing. You know, the Southwest folks uh, were given a clearance, but by the time they taxied into position and actually started pushing the uh, the power up and, and starting that takeoff roll, it was some 30, 38 seconds before they actually got going. Well, 38 seconds, you look at the FedEx airplane, 767, that approach speed's 135, maybe 140 knots, maybe a little more, depending on how heavy they were. But they're going to eat up 38 seconds worth of distance very quickly. And again, you know, where was the monitoring going on? Not only with the flight crews, but of course the air traffic controller. And as John and you mentioned, visibility was limited. So, but they do have ADSB. Do they have D bright in the tower? Are they able to watch and were they watching uh, on radar the progress of both airplanes? So these are the simple questions that, you know, expand this investigation into uh, you know, some complexities. Uh, was proper phraseology used as far as the communication? Was the communication adequate and timely? So these things are going to expand that investigation from something very obvious to the complexities of really dissecting the performance, not only of both flight crews, but of course, the air traffic controllers. You know, I wonder, I wonder if the fact that Everyone knows that Southwest taxis their airplanes fast. They they are among the fastest out there. And I've often criticized them when sitting at the board about how fast they taxi their airplanes. Turner, they they are, you know, if the FAA ever would enforce the speed limit, so to speak, on an airplane, a fast a fast walk, that they're certainly not doing a fast walk. They're doing a run. They're very fast and they taxi in. And maybe that that was a factor in the, the uh, air traffic controller trying to get that airplane out before the FedEx came in. Well, you just brought up a great point that I was going to mention, and that is um, air traffic control basically all over the country knows the operating model of Southwest. And that is, you know, push them out and get them going. Were they trying to squeeze this Southwest airplane out in a timely manner ahead of the 767? Um, versus, you know, at any other big airport, they're going to make them sit there and and hold until that airplane lands. So that too is a question. Were they trying to squeeze a departure out uh, prior to uh, to the FedEx airplane landing? All of these things, you know, have to be really um, not only developed as far as factually, but then analyzed properly to, to see if there are any corrective actions that need to be implemented. And, and I would expect that out of this particular event, there are going to be some corrective actions, whether they're local to the Austin airport or across the system. Um, and that's the beauty of, of doing a thorough and methodical investigation. So now let's switch gears to New York and JFK. Um, that airport is very crowded. There's a lot of activity going on. There's movement going on all the time. And when you look at, and, and I'm sure that a lot of our audience has already seen it, read it, heard it, and gone to, to YouTube to watch 
a lot of the the uh, the dissection of uh, of these two events. Some of the things that stood out to me that I haven't seen really anybody talking about is that that triple seven was sitting at a hot spot and a hot spot on various airports are high areas of congestion and, and potentials for collision on the ground. So the airplane had been sitting at a hot spot. Meanwhile, of course, the Delta 737 had taxied into position and uh, was given a takeoff clearance on runway four left. And so when uh, when, of course, the the incursion occurred where the triple seven crossed over that active runway, they believed that flight crew believed that they were going to the proper runway, which was improper eventually. And you can hear it. Um, and that was runway three one. But the question is, what was going on in the triple seven cockpit where they rushed? You have a captain and a first officer who are running checklists and that kind of stuff. They were given the clearance. And in fact, before they even moved, they read the clearance back, but it didn't it did not sink in. It was not assimilated. It didn't catch their attention because even though they read back that they were going to taxi to four left, they ended up going towards 31, um, 31 left. And the question is, why? I mean, what was going on there as far as were they distracted? We talk about distraction all the time. Were they complacent? Um, you know, what was happening in, in that particular cockpit? And the one interesting thing that I noted when I was listening to the conversation, uh, well, there's a number of things, but of course, the triple seven was talking on a different frequency to a different controller. There's a female controller handling that triple seven. It was a male controller, presumably the tower controller handling the Delta. And again, now you have two different aircraft on two different frequencies. So you can't really monitor what what's going on on that other frequency. And then when the uh, when the when the ground controller, um, you know, got excited because, of course, the tower controller called the abort for the Delta Airlines airplane, which I would question phraseology. And I posed this to a lot of airline uh, pilot friends of mine because the phraseology that was used for the Delta aircraft was takeoff clearance canceled, takeoff clearance canceled. Those are a lot of words in a high-stress situation. Takeoff clearance canceled. Well, what does that really mean versus abort, abort, abort? I mean, as soon as you hear abort, 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 that has a greater impact and a sense of urgency than takeoff clearance canceled because you can be sitting at the end of the runway and have your takeoff clearance canceled for whatever reason that is non-urgent. So I, I would be thinking about you know looking at phraseology. Was that the appropriate phraseology? Then you shift gears to uh, the ground controller when she, too, was trying to get the 777 crew to stop. She said, hold your position or thereabouts. They were right in the middle of a runway. It's like, get off the runway, expedite, do something. But you don't want them to stop right there because if that Delta crew couldn't have gotten that airplane stopped, they were going to get center punched. And, and that 777 already had the momentum and the energy to keep crossing. So just expedite your crossing. We'll talk about it as soon as you clear the uh, the runway. So again, I would be looking at phraseology. And and, and of course, why, why did it take so long for that communication between the ground controller and the, um, and the tower controller to sync up where when they did get it, yeah, there was a bit of a sense of urgency at that point. But I think one of the other interesting points was 
when the uh, when the tower or when the uh, um, yeah when the tower I guess called uh, the triple seven crew and said hey I got a phone number for you to call because there was a pilot deviation uh, the first officer responded okay we're ready for the uh, for the number but then the captain came on and basically said well we were cleared to cross the runway weren't we kind of with an attitude. And then when the air traffic controller schooled them that, yeah, you were, but you <laughs> you were going the wrong way. You went to the wrong runway. There was a bit of resignation in that, uh, presumably that captain's voice when they responded. But really what blows my mind, gentlemen, is the fact that that 777 crew ended up taking off and going to destination. Really? I mean, that 737 crew, it was obvious that uh, they were kind of shook, shaken up. And they were going to go make phone calls and and kind of get it together. These guys just blasted off. Well, I don't think I don't think they knew at that point in time when they took off. I don't think they knew the reason why they had to call in. Yeah, because of the because of the different frequencies, I don't think they had a clue that that they had just caused a major problem. Yeah, but when the controller goes, yeah, you know, you got a pilot deviation, <laughs> you crossed a runway that you shouldn't have crossed. You're going to the wrong place. I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm overthinking this a little bit. But again, all of these things, again, come down to communication, sense of urgency, distraction, complacency. Um, you know, again, we have taxi maps in these later generation airplanes. You can pull up the whole taxi map. I mean, these people, I'm sure this isn't the first time they've operated at JFK. So how did they get confused or why were they believing that they were going to the proper runway when, in fact, they were going to the incorrect runway? One, one of the unfortunate right. things about this is that because they blasted off and went to destination, it was over two hours away. There's not going to be any uh, CDR uh, audio to uh, review on this. So there are communications outside of the cockpit to air traffic control will have, but we won't have any direct idea what was being said or not being said in that cockpit at that critical time. And when there's a third pilot in the cockpit and a third person in the cockpit and didn't have a role in any of this, was he a distraction? Was he trying to talk to them? We know that the first officer was trying to make the announcements and was also looking through the book because they had a new announcement to make. So there's a, there's a you know, half of your crew with your attention diverted somewhere else. I mean, this is a, an area that is ripe, ripe for a really detailed uh, look. And I, just like you, Greg, I was concerned about them taking off uh, because initially when I heard about that type of taking off, I was thinking you just went through probably the most success, most stressful experience that you've had in your flying career and you keep going. Yeah. Well, that's what, that's why I started to dig in that a little deeper and found out that they were totally un aware of that they thought they just had a runway incursion which which is uh, a hell of a lot different than having an airplane abort because you're in the runway protected area yeah so they weren't aware of it so i was a little bit relieved when i heard that part i read that part that at least they didn't they weren't all stressed out about about what just happened and you know they're probably a little stressed out because they're going to take on an argument about uh blowing the whole uh, shot for an active runway, but at least they weren't really 
stressed out to the point the decision making would be horrible. But again, like you bring up, I mean, we got to look at it from the human factors aspects. We got to see what was going on. Is this a one off? Is this an isolated event? Or was there a systemic issue going on? We know about sterile cockpit. And like you brought up, John, if somebody is talking and they're just uh, sitting in the jump seat, I mean, are they talking airplane stuff related to the to the um, course of that particular flight? Or was it just general BS that they were, you know, shooting the bull while they were, you know, taxiing to, uh, to the runway? So all of these things are very, very critical that take an in-depth look um, on the, not only the board's part, but of course the FAA's part. And um, and, and these two events uh, demonstrate, and we had another, we've had a couple of recent events. Uh, we just had a United 777 coming out of Hawaii that lost over almost 9,000 feet right after takeoff. Yeah. Um, you know, the question is what was going on there? And is that a mechanical issue? Is that a human factors issue, autopilot issue? What was going on with all of that? Yes. There's a lot, of, a lot of human factors issues coming to the surface right now. Uh, based on one of our previous shows, I got an email from a mechanic that I know, and uh, he starts to tell me about the number of times that after maintenance does a certain electronic check on a, on a 737 MAX at night, it calls them to change switches in the cockpit. Hmm. It never calls them to restore the switches back to the original position. So he said that it's very common, you know, common enough that he can remember multiple times where these 737s have taken off and they've come back in because the trim switch is off and they come back in reporting an autopilot problem uh, unable to control the trim. And meanwhile, it's simply turned off. So what's that call into question? The originating pre-flight. Yeah. You know, you get out there in the morning. Are you doing the pre-flight the way you should be? Or are you just running through it quickly by memory instead of by uh, the checklist? So that, yeah. that was an interesting point. Yep. And and I've, I've been working several accidents and incidents right now where the pilots have performed the checklist. Unfortunately, they they did it in such a rote manner that they didn't really assimilate what was going on when they were pushing buttons and flipping switches. I mean, they went through the motions, but they never verified that, in fact, what they were doing was the correct action based on the checklist. Um, and, and now you have switches in the wrong position. You don't have the flap set, even though you put your hand on that flap handle and you think you've ratcheted down into it into a detent it may not have gone into that particular detent it isn't verified but hey i went through the motion i know i moved that that flap handle well yeah you may have moved it but it didn't go to where you wanted it to go <laughs> little things like that that result in these human errors and while they don't sound like much they do translate into a serious event especially if you don't have the flap set properly Next thing you know, your takeoff run is a hell of a lot longer than you thought it should be or calculated it should be. And now you're in a position of question of, man, we're going fast. Do I have enough um, accelerated stop distance or do I try to get this beast in the air and make it fly? Yeah. I mean, we all know that there's certain times in, in any flight profile 
where you really need to have 110% of your attention focused on the job. And then there's times in the same flight profile where you can sit back and relax because there's not much going on. And some of it is geographically located. You're taking off out of JFK, you've got to have your, your, your eyes out of the cockpit. You've got to have done your, your, your checklist is very diligently, right? Uh, and you otherwise you're taken off out of uh, Barking Spider, Montana, and you got all the time in the world and there's no traffic around you for 100 miles. I was just going to say, you bring up a good point. And, you know, yeah, density. I mean, JFK is a is a densely populated airport with movement going on all the time. Um, I know I've got a lot of uh, friends of mine that fly corporate. And while they do have, you know, um, the the RAS system, which is a, a basically a, a, a simple, simple system for them to uh, follow their taxi progress on the ground. And if there is any kind of potential for an incursion, um, they lovingly get a voice barking at them that uh, is referred to as, quote, bitching Betty. And and <laughs> and of course, that voice is to alert them that, hey, you got a potential situation coming up here. You got to take corrective action. Well, they get a lot of nuisance warning. So now you have a safety system that gets turned down or turned off. And that that negates basically the whole intent and purpose. So. Again, while we have all of this great technology and we train for this technology for the pilots to use, sometimes does it become a burden? Does it become a nuisance? Do we go back to old school? It's all about the human. And, and that's why the study between and the interaction between humans and technology is so critical. We see it. We've been talking about it on this show for almost two years now, and that is the integration of a general aviation pilot into the world of technology and depending on that technology. You know, you have a, a, a you know, state-of-the-art uh, avionics package in your airplane. You got TAWS, you got weather radar, um, you know, you got the magenta line to go from point A to point B. Um, you got TCAS, you got all of this technology in this airplane. And now you have pilots who become extremely dependent on the technology to keep them out of trouble. It'll only do that as long as it's been programmed properly or interpreted properly by the human. And that's where we get into a problem. And it's not just general aviation, you know, it's big airplane drivers as well. And so I think that again, as we've talked about the new doctor killer, if you will, in general aviation is not the old beach bonanza like, you know, it, it used to be um, characterized. It's the avionics system in any airplane. And it's this new generation of avionics because the dependency is so high. And um, and what yeah, training is necessary. Mean, I've been flying a Cirrus. I mean, that's a lot of, you know, technology in that Garmin perspective system. And unless you're very well conversant in all of the technology and its capabilities, or you stay proficient with that technology, you can get yourself into trouble very quickly. And I think that the board really should be looking at, again, they've done studies in the past. I know um, Alpa has done studies as, as well as uh, other aspects of the industry with you know, that interaction between the human and technology. And maybe we have to revisit it again, either as a refresher or identify some new issues that are, are cropping up. You know, Greg, I just had, 
I had the opportunity to talk to an international pilot, friend of both of ours, a, a very good friend of both of us. And, uh, and the question was raised about on the max, uh, turning the trim switch off. And I didn't know this as, but internationally, they don't teach that as a memory item. Now that was always a memory item in the U.S. Runaway trim, first thing goes down. Yeah. Uh, but internationally, that's not not treated as a memory item, hmm. which which uh, caused me to step back a little bit. Think about that. So well, one the of the training that the, these pilots are receiving uh, came from. So if, if you mentioned it on the GA, bringing the GA pilot into the into the cockpit, well, you could be coming from another airline too with a totally different training program, and have a problem with that as well. And and that's a concern. And, and get in a stressful situation, revert back to what you know best. And we've had this discussion uh, for as long as we've been on the air with this show, and that is is that standardized training does not exist around the world. And when you have foreign carriers that are, you know, buying airplanes, you know, what language are the flight manuals in? What language are the maintenance manuals in? What language are the training programs in? It, it's all English. And while some are more conversant than others and they're supposed to be uh, level four proficient, that doesn't guarantee that there isn't something lost in the interpretation. We saw that with Ethiopia. And the, and the 737 MAX there, we definitely saw that with Indonesia. We dissected that accident to the nth degree, and we're going to now get into Ethiopia, um, the Ethiopian 737, now that the, quote, final report is hovering out there. And uh, I'm, again, glad to see that the NTSB finally spoke up as well as the BEA, but I don't think they covered all the things that needed to be covered, and <laughs> they sure didn't cover it the way we cover it as far as poking the bear. But we'll get into that. But one last thing before we close the show out. What's going on with all us shooting down all of these, quote, UFOs? Well, what you were saying a few minutes ago about the interaction of human with technology with, within an aircraft, I believe it's happening system-wide because, as many in the audience knows, uh, early in uh, February, there was a shoot down of a balloon off the coast of South Carolina. That was a case where... It was seen for days, had transited Alaska and Canada and large parts of the central U.S. Weather was clear over lots of the U.S., so you actually had quite a few pictures, both of the shoot down and even in flight, of civilians who took pictures of this. So there was no filter of getting this information out. The entire world knew what these balloon, this, this particular balloon looked like. There have been two cases since then where something was shot down. And unlike the first case, there are no clear pictures from civilians of what was going on. All we have is a limited amount of information from the government saying, oh, it looked like such and such. And the descriptions are nothing like what was shot down off of South Carolina. Yeah. And unlike um, before, because of the South Carolina event, there's been a change in how things are done when it comes to NORAD and protecting North American airspace. And I think there's a transition going on. The technology has always been there to see these sorts of things in the sky. But now the policy is changing, where now instead of saying, oh, it's not a missile, it's not an aircraft, therefore we could ignore it. Now they're not being ignored. And right now the response seems to be, let's take care of it. 
And taking care of it means not just shooting them down. It means having a temporary flight restriction, maybe uh, blocking civilian aircraft from flying. It means scrambling aircraft, military aircraft, in an unusual way that might disrupt um, the patterns of behavior of civilian pilots. So there is a potential safety of flight issue as both the civilian and the military world gets used to the new reality of if it looks like it's not an airplane or a rocket and unknown, a UAP, an unidentified aerial phenomena, we're going to do something about it. Yeah. Now you bring up a good point. You know, I, I had a laugh when they were talking about uh, adjusting the radar so that they could pick up these objects that they sort of ignored, just like you, you described, Todd. But I remember when NORADS was standing up uh, one of their radar facilities, they had an alert of an incoming missile strike, but they had none of the other sensors were, and it was the moon because the radar <laughs> had become, become uh, so sensitive and, and so uh, far-reaching that when the moon came up over the horizon, it was picked up as a launch of a missile, and it caused a lot of... Uh, uh, well, so I my, think the my nervous moments is, and they uh, bias out those signals. My advice to the journal so automatically they bile it out. Well, we keep stepping on one another. Go ahead, Todd. And to the general public, I say this: um, the official mouthpieces of the government haven't come to firm conclusions, or at least none that they're sharing with the general public. And I think it would be premature to jump the gun and say, "Oh, these are Chinese, other Chinese balloons, or these are UFOs, or whatever." What we do know is this. Things have been shot at and shot down. What they were, we don't know yet. Because of national security concerns, we may never know the full story. But again, don't jump to conclusions. It's not a conspiracy theory as much as it is a large bureaucratic organization, several of them, trying to come to grips with a new reality. And there will be some confusion until that reality is settled. It's a good way to end the show, my friend. So I will, yes. I, I presume, was that your last word, Todd? That was my last word. <laughs> so I will leave it to the patriarch of uh, of this show and, uh, and let you give us the last word, John. Well, since I get a lot of emails from people telling me how much they appreciate these comments at the end of the show, I'm not about to change them. So if you're going to go flying, general aviation, or even commercial airlines, although they have a lot of help. Uh, make sure you do your weather planning and all your planning before you go to the airport. Do it again when you get to the airport. When you get out to your airplane, do a very thorough pre-flight. And if you don't, or if you feel not confident about the pre-flight you do, get somebody that works in the airplane regularly and have them walk around with you. When you get in the airplane, make sure all the switches are where they're supposed to be. Right When you run through it, uh, be thorough. When you get off the ground, put that head of yours on a swivel because we still have problems. And in fact, the two air traffic control issues that we talked about today, if maybe they, they were watching more outside the, the cockpit, especially the first officer on the 777 who was heads down trying to read the new procedure that they were were uh, asked to uh, read or announce to the passengers, uh, maybe they would have caught that before it became an issue. So please pay attention. 
when you're taking an airplane off the ground, it's a very busy time and it's a very challenging time. Pay attention. Thank you for checking out our show. We really value our listeners and subscribers. Our podcast gets ranked by you and how much you like it. So please give us five stars in your podcast platform. We want to keep in contact with you. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and of course, YouTube. You can email the show at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. By the way, if you're on YouTube, we're really working on growing the channel, and it helps if you all send in comments. Please do that, and we read all the comments. And be sure to subscribe. Remember, if you're in the market for aviation insurance, you can save 5% with Avemco just by mentioning our show. Visit them at www.avemco.com. That's it for this episode of the Flight Safety Detective. Until the next episode, fly safe.